so we're the Borromeo brothers, men on pilgrimage to learn how to love God and love one another. Um, what we've been talking about the few weeks before Columbus Day is Christian communia, is how do we relate to each other in a new way in light of the resurrection, in light of Christ risen from the dead. Um, how, one of the questions we kind of keep asking is, how is Christian community different? What's different about a community of Christians than just any other community of friends, any other group of people who enjoy being around one another? Um, and I think the answer is simple. We believe in a God who is love. We believe that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We believe that Jesus Christ died, went into the ground, was buried, and rose from the dead on the third day for the salvation of the world. We believe that God became man and absorbed into his body, into his flesh and his blood, all of the brokenness, all of the pain, all of the suffering, and he swallowed it into himself to redeem it all. We believe in a God who loves us so intimately, he wants to dwell within us. He wants to make us his home. We believe in a God who loves us so intimately that he wants to be perfectly united to us and shepherd us into his kingdom. And that fundamentally alters the way we relate to each other because it means our life is not about us. The story is not about us. The world is not about us. It's about him. And that changes everything. So I don't believe when I encounter you, that you are contained in the sum of my experience of you. I don't put fetters on you by saying, you're who I thought you were. You're who I feel about you. You're, my experience of you is who you really are. Because who you really are is not how I experience you. It's how Christ experiences you. The truth of who you are is what Christ thinks about you. How Christ feels about you. How Christ experiences you. That's the truth of who each of us is. But that's a complete mystery to me. I cannot possibly know or pretend to know how Christ experiences you, which means I have to approach you with humility and with reverence and a desire to seek you in, through, and with Jesus Christ. I have to seek you in humility and openness, not pretending that I already know you or understand, but seeking understanding so that I can seek the truth of who you are. I can seek what Christ is doing in and through you, so that I can invite you to trust him in whatever work he's doing. And that's just different. That's just a completely different way of relating to one another. And we talked about that and called it the spirit mindset of approaching people with humility, of bearing the burden of the other person's personality, of however we experience them, bearing the burden of all their difficulties and struggles, so that we can allow Christ's work within them to unfold over time. Um, but the same thing also applies to our relationship with the community as a whole. Because I think what often happens is we get into the Christian community, whether we're, you know, we convert or we, uh, you know, just begin to take our faith more seriously again, and the community is not what we expected it to be. <laughs> That we get into the community and it's not what we expected. That we were expecting this and we got this. And so we have to do the exact same thing with the community that we do in our one-on-one -on -one relationships. And that's not put the fetters of our own expectations on it. 
And we're going to talk about that a little bit more going forward. And Doug's going to lead us in that. So I'm going to say a quick prayer for him and then pass the mic to him. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are love. Thank you that you made us to know you and know one another. Father, help us to understand more perfectly, more completely, what it is that you desire for us, what you desire for us personally, and what you desire for us corporately as a community. Help us to understand you, understand ourselves, each other, and the community that is yours. We belong to you, Father. Help us to understand the work that you are doing in our community. I ask that you would bless Doug, that you'd fill him with your words, with your wisdom, so that through him we would hear from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you for the recap, Pat. That was helpful. Didn't steal too much of my thunder. Um, So this situates, if you remember, we've talked a lot about the seven pillars. And right now this focus on community or communio for the next couple of weeks is pillar pillar six. Um, of course, pillar one is Christ-centeredness. Two is scripture, which corresponds to our spiritual anatomy with the mind. Liturgy is pillar three, which corresponds to our soul. Prayer is pillar four, which goes to our heart. Five is obedience, which goes to our will. And then six is communio, our life together in Christ. And seven is evangelization, how we take this to the world outside the church or how we quicken the spirit within the church and work to make it more lively. So when Pat came to me with this, he said I should talk about the mundane. And I don't know why he came to me with that. <laughs> you know? uh, I was reminded of uh, something a professor of mine in college told me. I was complaining as I want to do at times about the politics within my church at the time. I was frustrated, I was frustrated. And he says to me, some of you have heard this before, the church is kind of like Noah's Ark. It smells really bad on the inside, but it's better than jumping overboard. (laughs) So there's life in the church. There's death outside of the church. So I thought it'd be useful to sort of frame things with, uh, with some questions for you guys to think about as we go through the Paul's letter to Philemon together. Um, just wanted to pose some questions. If any of these resonate with you, think about them as we're going, you know, as, I, as I'm talking. Um, first is simply, why are you here? Like, why'd you come today? Why'd you get up on this cold fall morning to come to St. Charles to have fellowship with us? What's your hope for the fellowship? What do you want to contribute? What do you want to get? Is there someone here who you hoped to see? Ooh, I really hope so-and-so's there. Like, I'm really excited to see my my friend here. A longtime friend of mine is is here with us today. And that warms my heart to have him here with us. Is there somebody you didn't want to see? Oh, gosh, he's here. He's going to talk the whole time. Do you know everybody's name? If not, why not? Part because they don't have name tags. What do you have to offer? We talked about the gifts. What do you have to offer to our our community here? And the men around the table, how well do you know them? What do you know about them now? What do you want to know about them? 
What do you want to share about yourself? Just keep that in mind as we go. So I had, a, I had an interesting experience of a high school teammate of mine getting admitted to my school's Hall of Fame for sports. He's a good teammate, great runner. The guy qualified for the Olympic trials in the marathon. He ran a 217 marathon. And he also is a contributing team member on five state championship teams, which is a lot. Three cross-country teams, two, two track teams. He's a really good runner. He ran for Princeton, and then he ran professionally after that. So he's not only a good runner, he's also really smart. And it was fun to catch up with him. And talking to him, I realized that my, my sense of what we did together as a team is different than his. And so in framing this, we, we come into these things saying, Paul, you know, we don't necessarily know ourselves as well as we think we do. And that experience of hanging out with some of my old teammates and talking about what happened 20 years ago, their sense of who I am is different than what I thought. And frankly, it's more complimentary. It's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not as arrogant as I thought I was. I didn't come off as aloof as I thought I did. Wow, these men, like they, my teammates actually respected me more than I thought they did. And that was really encouraging for me to, to see. So hopefully this fellowship here has the same kind of consequence. And that in coming together, we get to see that, oh, hey, when we're together in Christ, we know ourselves better than we thought we did. Or Christ knows me better than I know me. And it, there's peace and joy in that that can help me contribute more to the community. So here's what I want to do. I just want to read... Read the entire letter of Philemon. It's not very long. Uh, and then we, I just want to highlight some aspects of it to, to introduce the discussion. And then I want to not take too much time and instead kick it to you guys to have a conversation about this wonderful little letter around the tables. So we didn't print it out, but if you have your Bibles, open it up. Uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved and our co-worker, to Apphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church at your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always, remembering you in my prayers, as I hear of the love and the faith you have in the Lord Jesus and for all the holy ones, so that your partnership in the faith may become effective in recognizing every good there is in us that leads to Christ. For I have experienced much joy and encouragement from your love, because the hearts of the holy ones have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, although I have the full right in Christ to order you to do what is proper, I rather urge you out of love, being as I am, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I urge you on behalf of my child Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment, who was once useless to you, but is now useful to both you and me. I am sending him, that is my own heart, back to you. I should have liked to retain him for myself, so that he might serve me on your behalf, in my imprisonment for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that the goods you do might not be forced, but voluntary. Perhaps this is why he was away from you for a while, 
that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a brother, beloved, especially to me, but even more so to you as a man and in the Lord. So that if you regard me as a partner, welcome him as you would me. And if he has done you any injustice or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this in my own hand. I will pay. May I not tell you that you owe me your very self. Yes, brother, may I profit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. With trust in your compliance, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I hope to be granted to you through your prayers. Epiphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you, as well as Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. This isn't a beautiful, neglected little letter. It's very intimate. Uh, it's probably one of the most personal in the, in, the, in the canon. I just want to highlight a couple of things. First is how Paul identifies himself. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. At the very beginning, Paul is saying, I'm not writing to you out of my authority as an apostle. I'm writing to you from a position of subservience, a posture of weakness. If you look at the other greetings, whether it's Romans or whether it's Corinthians, he does not identify himself as a prisoner. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. That's Romans. He's a slave to Christ, but he's called to apostleship. So he's writing the Romans from a posture of authority as an apostle. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's 1 Corinthians. He doesn't say that here. So the tone is immediately different. Paul's doing something different here. And he says as much. Therefore, this is verse 8, Therefore, although I have the full right in Christ to order you to do what is proper, I rather urge you out of love. I encourage you out of love to do what I'm asking. Don't make me force you. Those of us who have kids have done this. Just please do what I say. Don't make me tell you to do it. Don't violate the fellowship within the family that way. Don't make me use my authority. Let me appeal to you out of love. So that's the first thing. He's not writing from a posture of authority. He is dealing with a problem. So this is about the mundane. And the context for the letter is this slave named Onesimus, which means useful, which is why Paul uses the word useful and useless. It's a play on, on his name. Paul's a very clever, smart writer. Um, so Onesimus was a common name for a slave because they're useful. And he's talking about usefulness and uselessness. So he's dealing with a problem. And it's a uh, slavery. Wow, okay. Why isn't Paul, why is Paul sending a slave back? Why is he saying slavery is terrible? He should stay with me. How dare you, you evil slave owner? But that's not who we are in Christ, right? So I ask you guys some framing questions. I don't know what a lot of you do for a living. Does it matter? No, not here. Out there it might. Out in the world it might. Here it doesn't matter. That's not why we're together. We're together because we're all brothers in Christ. We're all baptized into the same, into the same trinity. Under the same, you know, the, we're all baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
that unites us together in Christ. We are part of his church, united together, and working to, to, to spread the gospel and proclaim it. In the same way, it doesn't matter that Onesimus is a slave. It doesn't matter that Philemon is a slaveholder. Because the relationship between all three of them is bigger than that. It transcends social construct because they're all together in Christ. But it's a problem. And it's a problem for the community, perhaps. That's another little detail here. It's not just Paul who's writing. We've missed this, I think, sometimes when we read Paul. It's also Timothy. Timothy's with him. And then you go to the end, the greetings, Epaphras. Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke are all together with Paul. And Onesimus is with Paul. They're all together. Why are they together? For Christ. The basis, of, the basis of Paul's whole appeal is that maybe Philemon was responsible for the church in, in Laodicea, in Coles, which is where they were. Paul's maybe in Ephesus. He's maybe in Rome, most likely in Ephesus which is a little port city, kind of in from the, the, the sea, southern, south, western Turkey, and then kept, you know, the Coles is a little bit more interior, which is where he's sending Onesimus back. But it's not just Paul. They're all together because of the church. Paul remembers Philemon in his prayers because of the faith he has in the Lord Jesus, and the love he has for the Lord Jesus, and the love he has for all the holy ones. That's the church. That's the community, the direct community around Philemon. And where are they gathering? At somebody's house. It's a small, intimate community of people who gather in a house, not like St. Charles, house churches. The same people show up in the greeting in uh, Colossians. So it's a big community of people. And he's dealing with the problem. And he, he doesn't come at it like, ah, I have to deal with this runaway slave. And he came. So we, the, we don't know how Paul and Onesimus met. Probably Onesimus was thrown in prison. He's in prison. He meets Paul. Paul witnesses to him. He's converted. That's why he's his father in Christ. So he's sending him back. So it's interesting to see. So as we talk about this together, we have a guy in a community, in a prison, who has authority, who's not using it to restore fellowship that's been broken. And in restoring the fellowship that's been broken, he's not using authority. He's using love. He's not appealing to authority. He's appealing to love. He's appealing to a love rooted not in usefulness in a societal sense. He's appealing to love that's grounded in their common identity in Christ. He's appealing to the love that between Paul, between himself and Philemon, rooted in their joint work for the kingdom of God. He keeps that in mind. I think it's important for us to keep the same thing in mind when we come together. Why are we here? Because we're men on pilgrimage. What are we trying to do? Grow in Christ, both individually and together. Why? So that we can spread the kingdom. Same thing as Paul was doing in the letter. So it's worth reflecting, and then we're talking about koinonia. Paul appeals to the partnership that he has with Philemon. Partnership there 
as Pat talked about early in these, the series, the word there is koinonia. If our koinonia means anything, if our joint enterprise, if our partnership means anything to you, do this for me. Are we willing to ask anybody here at these tables to do something for us? Hey, help me in Christ this way. If we get that appeal, are we willing to say yes? I'm not saying the answer is no. The answer may be yes. The answer may be no depending on family stuff. But it's easy just to come and say, okay, what did I get out of Borromeo Brothers? And then leave. It's bigger than that, right? Oh, man, Doug's still talking. Yeah. So it's important to remember that like, in highlighting slavery, what I wanted to highlight is Paul's letter in building Christ does not unfold in some kind of vacuum. It doesn't unfold in some you know, room that's perfect and covered in a bunch of stained glass windows where Paul can center himself in Christ and feel awesome. He's doing it from a prison cell. It was disgusting in that prison cell. Rat-infested, unsanitary. He's probably peeing and pooping in a corner along with a lot of other guys who are in that room with him. He's in chains. He's literally shackled. Don't be ashamed of my chains, he writes. Real chains. He's literally chained up. It's gross. He can still write this way. It's real. It's gross. It's like visceral. It's bodily. So is the incarnation. So it's easy for us to want Christ, like in our like Christianity, to be like the frosting on a dry cake of life. But it's not. It penetrates all the way through the whole thing. It gets to the root of it. It gets to the bottom of it. And it gets to all the brokenness in the relationships, all the things that we want to hide from each other in this room. The light of Christ shines to all of that. It's not neglected. And hopefully we can help each other carry those burdens. And it's all rooted in, like it's, it's, you know, it's in the incarnation. So if you look, like Jesus walked around anonymously on the, on, you know, in the world for about 30 years. I don't want you guys to be disappointed, you know, because you're like, oh, Doug's talking. He's going to bring up the catechism. Well, got it. If I can find where I, where I am. I find this interesting to think about the secret life of Jesus, the hidden life of Jesus. Because during that time of life, we, he was doing the same thing we were doing. This is what the Catechism says. This is paragraph 531. During the greater part of his life, Jesus shared the condition of the vast majority of human beings, a daily life spent without evident greatness, a life of manual labor. His religious life was that of a Jew obedient to the law of God, a life in the community. From this whole period, it is revealed to us that Jesus was obedient to his parents and that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's all we know about Jesus' life for 30 years. He was working, supporting his family, working with his father Joseph until Joseph probably died, and then he supported his mother, just like any other person would have in his time. And that was God incarnate doing that. So it's easy as we go through life expecting our fellowship to be more, expecting it to be perfect, expecting it to not be broken. No, it's not perfect. It's not broken because we're all broken. And if we come to each other out of that brokenness, 
and we focus on that brokenness, fellowship's going to leave us a little dry. That's okay, because we have Christ to quicken it. We have Christ to breathe life into it. We have Christ to give it light. And all of us come bearing Christ to each other, as imperfect as we are. In the context of the world that we live in, just like Paul is writing in a world of slavery, we live in a world of pick your, pick your societal woe, pick your complaints about the church, pick your complaints about my talk, whatever. Yet, we're all united in Christ. And we're gathered in his name, which means he's here with us. So, I just wanted to, Philemon, it's a beautiful little letter, very intimate, very grounded in the life of Paul and the life of the church. Um, an imperfect situation from prison in a broken world where men were treated as the property of other people. But in the midst of all of that, Paul appeals to love and a common identity in Christ to restore relationship. And in sending Onesimus back to Philemon and sending him back to Coles, he was saying, welcome him not as a slave, but as a brother. The gospel transforms who we are transforms our relationships. So, with that, thank you. Amen.